Welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. I'm Trevor Maxwell. I'm a stage four colon cancer survivor, and I've got a message for other men. You don't have to go through this alone. What does it mean to man up to cancer? It means reaching out instead of isolating. It means having the courage to accept help along the way. To me, manning up isn't just about being tough. It's about knowing that we're stronger and smarter as a pack than we are as lone wolves. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. Scott Wilson is with us today. He is originally from Scotland. Scott now lives with his family in Denver, Colorado. Scott's a husband, father, acclaimed photographer, and a stage four colorectal cancer survivor. He is a powerhouse advocate for education, screening, research, and treatment advances for colorectal cancer in Colorado and at the national and international level as well. I'm psyched to have Scott on the show. Hey, Scott, welcome. Hey, Trevor. It's great to meet you at last, and thank you for those very humbling words of introduction. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for being here. And and Kellen is here with me at Man Up to Cancer World Headquarters, still also known as my family room in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. Hey, Kellen. Yep, still comfy. We're good. Hey, Kellen. Nice to meet you, too. Nice to meet you. Kellen is not a man, doesn't have cancer. So she's the perfect sidekick to keep us on our toes here. And, and I don't think manning up to cancer is a, an exclusive male mission. So. <laughs> no, it is not. Absolutely. Anyone who comes into the fold learns that pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to start with the photograph. So I started getting on Facebook a lot, meeting people in Cancerland, And I'm scrolling through. I can't remember when or where it was, but I see this photograph of this very handsome, rugged, shirtless uh, man with a surgical scar across his abdomen, very similar to one that I might have. And he is holding his head up high. He's got his arms and fists in a kind of an X in front of him. And he has this look of defiance about him. Like, and he has written the word survivor. It looks like in pen along the surgical scar line. And as someone who, you know, has had that surgery, liver surgery twice and knows that scar, I froze in my tracks. Like I literally was like, wow, like (laughs) here is a fellow survivor and he is showing us an image that is raw and real and honest and powerful. And I reached out to you right away. I was like, I sent you a photo of my scar and everything else. And it was just a moment for me. And I still think of that photo a lot and I have it on my computer and I have it here around the house. Tell me about that image and the origin of it. Sure. It's great to meet a scar brother. Yeah. There, there was a, a very powerful personal motivation, to be honest. And like many of us, you struggle to kind of reconcile your disease. And, and I think I had reconciled it for myself, uh, even though I'm far too young. Uh, being diagnosed at 48, I still felt I had led a good life and I was enjoying hmm. A decent recovery. And, and then two things happened in very short order. I, I lost a very dear friend, Meredith, who I'd met at Colon Club, and she passed away from the disease, way, way younger than I had been diagnosed. And then I met a young man uh, called Cameron Harris-Brown, who was at the time uh, just 17. He's 18 now. And, and he was diagnosed stage four uh, with, with Mets in his lung and liver. And meeting Cameron and experiencing the loss of Meredith had such an impact on me in such a time. And it was like, how do I capture this and and bring this to life? 
Mm. And then just by coincidence, I was photographing my daughter for um, a, a homecoming uh, scene. So I had all the gear uh, set up and I thought, whoa, this is the moment. Just shoot myself and just capture that energy and spirit. Uh, there was a lot of takes doing this as a, a kind of self-timer piece and, and, and getting the focus right. But, um, you know, I, I knew what I wanted to say. And, and, and the description you've given back to me was what I was trying to portray. It was this sense of yeah. de- defiance. I'm not usually angry about my own disease, but I was angry about their disease. And, and, and for that to come across in some way, I, th- I think, was important. So that's where it came from. The piece about the writing, however... I think I was a little bit abashed by my scar. It wasn't it wasn't prominent enough. So so I had my daughter <laughs> she wrote the word survivor in a sharpie uh, around uh, the scar which gave it a prominence and I think actually added something to the image that that certainly wasn't there before. And I now have a, a very uh, committed uh, super nurse uh, Zozo Greenholtz who looks after me every three weeks still in maintenance treatment and she is determined that that script is going to be turned into a tattoo in short order so so she basically badgers me every single visit yeah. have you got that tattoo yet so we are all calling on that <laughs> tattoo for you because i think people who see the photo assume that it's that it's ink right that it's tattoo ink yeah and then they're like oh sharpie come on scott let's go well i, I will make you a promise right here that i haven't even discussed with my wife when i when i hit five years i'll, I'll get that tattoo Breaking news right here on Man Up the Cancer <laughs> podcast. You heard it here first. Before the family heard it, he's getting it. And and that's coming up soon, right? Five years for you is... No, it's actually two years away. So I was diagnosed four years ago. So you're right in that sense. Uh, and then I went through a year of surgery at the outset uh, to my colon resection, as many of us have experienced. I had a year of treatment, uh, of full, full chemotherapy, and then after I was pronounced NED, I had a liver resection, which has obviously helped reinforce that NED status. So I'm four years out from diagnosis and three years out from NED. So we could debate all day how long I've been a survivor. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure that we always clarify that NED means no evidence of disease because we right. do have some amazing listeners who might not be familiar with all your awesome like <clears throat> internal yeah, this is conversations. Kel- this is Kellen pulling us rightly out of the cancer weeds and, and letting people know, yes, no evidence of disease. Funnily enough, in Scotland, where I'm from, NED means non-educated delinquent. So oh, I, boy. <laughs> so, so when I published the news of my remission on Facebook, there was more hilarity than shock that I never had due to disease. <laughs> you mentioned Scotland, so I'm going to bring it up. When I connected with you on Facebook and, and shared the, the scars, I found out you know, that you are Scottish and now living here in the U.S., and had an immediate bro crush on you even more. Uh, so because I am a U.S. descendant of Scottish ancestors, I'm a wannabe Scotsman. I have uh, Calaveruk Castle tattooed on my arm, uh, but have never even been there yet. My dad has. Um, so I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, yeah, I, I just have to say that I'm, I'm a little fanboying right now over, the, you know, <laughs> not, not just that you're from Scotland. But so you were t- let's talk a little bit about your photography. So you kind of rose up and became an acclaimed photographer over there in Europe. And it was at landscapes that you were really known for? Yeah, mostly landscapes. And photography for me has always been a creative outlet, you know, something to do. And that wasn't my day job. I mean, I was, I was, right. work, I was working in the beer business at the time. 
And photography was just this wonderful escape. And I was able to sort of travel the length of breadth of Britain, taking landscapes, seascapes, etc., and and did fairly well in um, the landscape photography of the year competition. So so that was just this huge passion. I'd, I'd never imagined a crossover with the world of cancer, as you can imagine, but I was invited to move to Colorado in 2015 as part of my day job. And obviously the attraction of shooting Colorado landscapes was just, was, was massive. So, so we were delighted to move over. And oh, yeah. we traveled the length and breadth in every corner of Colorado uh, over the space of a year. And that's when the, the red light hit. And I was told I had uh, stage four colorectal cancer after finding a, a few blood spots where, where we don't want them. It, you know, very, very similar pattern to, to many of the, the people that will be listening to this podcast. I do have sure. family history, which is probably worth coming back to because there's a little, a couple of interesting anecdotes there, Trevor. But it was through treatment. And um, like many of us, I was put on a cocktail of drugs. So I had three chemo drugs, sort of familiar faces, fluorocell, leucovorin, oxyplatin, and this uh, immunotherapy drug, which had only recently come in the market, panitumumab, better known as Vectabix, I think. Mm. And again, as many of your listeners will know, the side effect of that, which I still have today, is sun sensitivity. And so I was suddenly like, ah, how do I shoot landscapes? I've got to be honest, that wasn't my first thought. Living was my first thought. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, when I actually got to how am I going to you know, keep that energy alive and get through treatment, photography was the place I wanted to go. And I realized I couldn't step out in the sun. Um, it was just so, so sensitive. So I started to shoot wildlife from my car window. And that was a brand new genre that I hadn't really uh, experienced before. So strangely, I need to thank Cancer for introducing me to a brand new sort of string to my photography bow, which I still do and love to this day. And that brought you through. That brought you to the through the window project. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, so effectively, that was my therapy. That's how it started. And and I would sit and I would come from, say, from, from chemo and just sit and get quite contemplative, but not in a dark way, just, you know, it's like, how, how do I kind of live my life to, to the full? And I was shooting and there's, there's gaps, obviously, as you're waiting for something to happen and I would take notes. And, and before I knew it, I was having the germ of an idea around telling my story as a way of thanking people that had helped save my life. Although, to be fair, at that point, I didn't know my life was actually being saved as such. Right. But but like many of us, as soon as you start to get on what might be called a road to recovery, you immediately think about how do I thank these people and give back? And, and that was my opportunity was uh, creating a fundraiser, which we did. Uh, the, the book was published, raised tens of thousands for cancer research and awareness, which I was delighted to give back. But it also gave me a platform to start talking to the community it was actually through that I realized it wasn't really about raising money. It was the conversations. And, mm. and funny enough, I mean, this speaks to your man up to cancer world. Men would come to me and say, Scott, love that picture of a hummingbird. That's fantastic. And, you know, maybe two or three questions in. It's like, how did you know you had cancer? Mm. And they're just asking the private personal questions. And I realized the book was a stepping stone into a conversation about colorectal cancer. And that became its purpose. But I hadn't realized that at the outset. Through the window project, I mean, it started off as a way of coping, but then it, it, that was one of the things that really opened your eyes to really what it means to be to be a patient advocate. And, and you have really taken the ball and, and run with that. Did you stay with that now as basically your primary 
focus or were you able to keep your other job that had brought you here originally? Because I'm curious about how your day-to-day life worked into this new passion as well as your cancer treatment, because it seems like it was all happening simultaneously. Yeah, there's a couple of journey paths there. So all through treatment, I continued to work uh, for the organization Molson Coors, which had brought me over to the United States and continued to to work for them after I was in remission when I was starting to get a little bit more active on, on the community side of things. I think, you know, the book was really just a stepping stone into more community activities. I went uh, to the Colon Club, uh, which may, many of your listeners will be familiar with. Definitely. So again, that introduced me to the opportunity to to meet Fight Colorectal Cancer, to go to uh, Washington, D.C. and start to advocate from that point of view. So I came back from that event with a real passion to, to do more. And then I had a, a, a quite fortunate, as it turns out, sort of parting ways with Molson Coors where uh, there was packages available. And that allowed me to kind of step out. And I went voluntary for a year uh, and worked for the Colorado Cancer Coalition to try and get the bill away that would reduce the screening age from 50 to 45 um, that has been impacted by COVID, so arguably it's on hold at the moment. Hopefully that, that will uh, come to fruition next year. But that's just given me this continued burning desire, if you like, to, to I guess, make this the day job. I think awareness and education are so huge. And I think that's a good, uh, this is a good point to circle back on your uh, family history and, and these open discussions that, that men in particular haven't been um, conditioned or uh, comfortable having for generations. So talk to us a little bit about, yeah, you, about your family and, and some history and then your own stuff. Cancer's actually been in our, well, in many families. I don't think we have an exclusive thing here, but it's been in my family for most of my life. I, I had a brother, Roddy, who I never met, who, who died at two years old, as oh. it turns out, from kidney cancer. Wow. Clearly that impacted my parents significantly. Yeah. My mother was diagnosed at 55 uh, with colon cancer, and I mean, I'll be honest, my awareness of the disease, like when I was in my 20s, was, was very, very low. Uh, I didn't really understand what was happening. We had no family history that I'm aware of prior to my mother. There's been breast cancer in the family, though, and, and I'm, you know, th- there are increasing signs that there are connections there. So mm. these are things that I'm alert to now, but simply would not have been alert to at that age. But we're, we, as a family, we're imparting this very strongly uh, on our children, and they know this story. They could come on your show and tell it to you. Right. So my mother was diagnosed at 59. She went through a process of treatment, went into short-term remission, but, but then uh, had a recurrence and, and died at 59, um, which I thought was incredibly young. <laughs> and it is. But until I was diagnosed at 48. But when I went to Colon Club, I actually felt like the grandfather. You know, the, the idea is that club was for people diagnosed young under 50. Yep. And there was people who'd been you know, diagnosed as young as 19. It's just absolutely, it's criminal. Anyway, the point of the story is because my mother was diagnosed at 55, I was tested at 45. But the British system is a little bit, um, dare I say it, backwards. Uh, you need to have two deceased relatives to earn a colonoscopy. So even though I was classed as high risk, I, I wasn't given a high risk test. I was given an average risk test, which you obviously need to repeat over, over a number of years. And that came back as negative. So being a young, naive 20 year old, without really having an understanding of family history, I was quite cavalier and thought, great, negative test, get on with your life. Sure. And then just th- three years later to wake up, uh, be told you're stage four 
And the colonoscopist said, you know, that's probably been growing for five to 10 years. So it easily predates that first test. So knowing your family history, knowing if you're high risk, treating high risk with respect and following up on that is absolutely critical. And I'm not here recriminating. You know, I went through what I went through, but if I can pass on that lesson to people, and certainly it's a lesson we'll pass on very strongly to our children, no matter what it takes financially to get them the right screening. So was your screening that you had, that was here in the States, you said? No, that was actually in the UK. The, the first screening was, was in the UK. But the diagnosis then, screening was here? Absolutely. Okay. So the colonoscopy that I had was here, yes. How was that for you in the sense that you hadn't been in the States all that long and probably most of your family and your connection to support was in other parts of the world? How was that when you kind of hadn't been here that long and then dealing with this diagnosis and... I'll be honest, it's petrifying. You know, yeah. you, you wake up to that kind of diagnosis and you go cold and you freeze and you, your, your mind just goes to mush. Yep. And um, this is where I could weep at any point. Um, so forgive me if, if You if would not be off, the first, so yeah. do not apologize. We <laughs> yeah. are an open yes. cry yep. place. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's when the rocks in your life emerge. And, you know, my, my wife is the, the biggest, firmest, most solid rock and uh, basically was there right beside me. She held my hand as we went through the, the pathology report. And she was the one that found the words, you know, is there, is there a treatment plan? And the oncologist said, yes. And that's all I needed. I didn't need to know you will recover from this. I didn't need to know you will be cured. And, 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 I, and I realize cure is a very contentious word around stage four anyway. But to just hear that, yes, we've got a treatment plan, that's all I needed. There was something else amazing that happened to me. And my boss at the time, he had a dear friend, Jeffrey Trent, who runs the Genomics Research Institute. And so they're looking at sort of real groundbreaking, far advanced or far reaching uh, research opportunities. And uh, my boss, Sam, uh, said, listen, you've just had the worst news possible. He says, I know this is going to sound strange, but I've got this friend. Do, do you mind if he gives you a call? You know, at that point, you're looking for anything as a, as a touchstone. I said, yeah, of course. And, he, and Jeffrey called me at home that evening. And he said, listen, I'm not on the phone to sell you some scientific future here. He says, I'm on the phone to tell you that I have complete confidence in the standard treatment that you're about to receive. It, it's absolutely groundbreaking stuff that's happening right now around chemo. He says, I have every confidence you're going to do well. But for every reason, if it doesn't work out, you've got a place to come and, and have a conversation. Wow. And, I, and I went to bed that night and just slept soundly. And I, like many of us, when you're, when you're diagnosed, they, they always hand you a bottle of Xanax. <laughs> 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 and and that, that sat unopened on the bedside table because of that phone call. Just let me sleep easy. Just having that kind of support... And if you like, authoritative encouragement behind you just sets you up and just sets you off on the right foot that you've got hope and confidence that, do you know what, this is a battle worth fighting. Yeah, Joe, actually, when we talked to Joe, he said that one of the things that really set him up right off the bat for a little bit level of confidence that he wouldn't have had otherwise walking back out of the door after diagnosis was his doctor saying, I've got you. He also says that he should have been able to walk out that door right back into a therapy door down the hall. But <laughs> that was, you know, he was saying that 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 initial feeling of like you're in this place of you're just your mind is just shattered and having mm-hmm. the person like you're saying of authority give you a little glimpse of like, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking about that from Joe. 
We talk a lot on this show about men and how we often face isolation during cancer. Speaking about the raison d'etre of man up to cancer is that issue of men isolating, whether it be mental, social, or just feeling like you got to handle everything without help and and without uh, saying much about it. Is that theme of isolation something that you faced at all, or were you one of the lucky ones to sort of not deal with that issue? It's a great question. I think I've been relatively lucky in having amazing friends and family around me and a medical community that that in many ways I've befriended. So I have never felt alone Mm. in that sense. But I think what you're speaking to are friends who are in the exact same boat that you can talk to that maybe relieves some of the people who aren't in that boat. You know, so 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 me talking to you, Trevor, about cancer, we, we get each other immediately. We understand where we're coming from. And there's a kind of mutual relief in that. I got that at Colon Club. I mean, these, these are friends for life. Right. And sometimes you don't even need to talk. You just know you've all been through cancer and that's enough. Your family can't replace that. And, and of course, I would never, ever want them to. And I think, I think having friends, it doesn't have to be men, about the disease that have been through the same situation uh, is just a fantastic uh, thing to have. I have so much respect for, for what you're doing with this group, Trevor. And, you know, I'm not always active involved, but I'm, I'm always monitoring and I see the things come through. And, you know, I, I see the reports of Ben and I see Joe's work. And it's just, <laughs> it's so, so uplifting. It really is. Thank you, Scott. I was pretty cynical about the internet in general and social media in particular before I had cancer. And now that I see the community that you can get from it when you don't have access to that right in your hometown, you know, I think it's the best and highest use because you can, I can meet Scott Wilson and share our scars and share our stories and have that instant comfort and, and just a a friendship that's there that never would have happened before all this. I think what you're doing, though, it, you seem to have done it in a way that's really engaging for men like us. And I remember I lost a friend, more a friend of a friend, Jeff, recently to, to, to our disease. Mm. And, and he was in his very early 50s by the time he died. And quite near the end, he was reaching out to me, asking you know little bits here and there, we would chat. And it actually got to the point that I wasn't sure how to help him because it, it was almost, if you don't mind me burdening you with this, it was an end of life conversation. Sure. And, and I thought, I'm really good at the uplifting stuff. I'm really good at the hope and the optimism. I'm not sure really how to deal with this. And I, I started to consult helplines and things. And, and his reaction was, I'm not a helpline kind of guy. <laughs> and I bet that's what most people in your group would say. Yeah. I'm not a helpline kind of guy. And yet we're all getting something from it. We're all getting this emotional connection that helplines, to be fair, were designed to give you. But you've found a way of packaging it that, that, yeah. that's wonderful. I think it's just being there. You know, we heard there, there are people who are not necessarily super engaged in the group that that get great comfort and solidarity and camaraderie out of just being part of it. You know, we lose members. That, that is, that's cancer. And and we lost someone a couple of weeks ago and his wife hopped on his Facebook and just sent us a note basically saying, you know, my husband really appreciated just being part of your group and, and the support that he got from the guys. And a lot of that was just, Hey, hey, mate, you know, we're, we're with you and we, under, we, you know, we feel for you. And it's just general, it's just general support and being there. And so it doesn't have to be complex and it doesn't have to be rocket science and it doesn't have to be something 
over the top with therapy or some helpline. It no. can just be someone who gets you and someone to say, you know what, we're on this journey together. There is an honesty about it as well. I've noticed with the conversations, it's not just emotional support, like don't worry, got your back. You're, you're having real down to earth, factual conversations about disease state, sexual health, right, anxiety, angst, all these different things. And, and these are just hugely important to our community. So the fact you're able to just make these conversations happen that probably just weren't happening at all before. I mean, men bottles shit up, don't we? <laughs> and I think it's just putting the walls up somewhere because there have been a lack of spaces for men facing cancer to be in a space where they don't feel like, well, like I always say, men don't want to go talk about sexual health, uh, intimacy. Some men don't want to talk about much of anything in a co-ed space because they're nervous about yeah. it or intimidated. Yeah. And, and so this, this guy space for men facing cancer is something that I guess I didn't realize wasn't out there too much. And then you just put up the walls and let people, you know, shoot the shit as we say. And, and, <laughs> and they do put up walls to break them down. Yeah. And oh, I think what good. you mentioned where there's a lot of co-ed spaces, I think that idea of wanting to be inclusive, but the reality of the nature of conversations, I'm sure women also have that issue in some ways that they probably don't want to talk about sexual health in a co-ed environment sure. either. People often ask me, how do you talk about your cancer with your children? And this is something we talk about in our group as well. Um, you know, go going through cancer as a dad. So my girls are 15 and 13 you're, you have a boy who, is he 18, you said? Andrew's 18 and Alba is 14. And a daughter who's 14. You know, do you have certain philosophies about how to communicate with your children as you have navigated cancer as a family? How have you approached that? Honesty is the first word that speaks to mind. Uh, children are very, very intelligent. They're very aware and they will pick things up even if you think you're, you're trying to screen them from them. So we told our children about my uh, diagnosis very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I remember vividly, uh, my son was oversleeping as he is wont to do now and again, and I just got on top of the bed beside him, just woke him up gently and said, listen, we're, we're going to have to have a conversation and explain what's happening. And I still remember him just rolling over and giving me a hug. And then I said... So bear in mind, he's 14 at the time and his sister's 10. Mm. I said, right, now I need your help because we're going to talk to your sister. And uh, so, so he helped me talk to his sister, Alwa. And it, it is difficult. And the kids, I mean, I still remember my reaction to my mother telling me, you know, and I was in my mid-20s. So I, 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 can't, I can't put myself in the place of much, much younger children. The way they responded was fantastic. And then I think the proof of the pudding comes in how you respond to treatment. And to be fair, from the first scan, we, we saw an improvement. Mm. So I was always able at that point, I was able to start with, this is what's happened. We've got a plan. We've got the euphemisms like it's a bump in the road. And, and as long as then the treatment delivers on that, then they're in good shape. So, so scan one, we, we saw a reduction. Scan two, a further reduction. Scan three, all, you know, almost clear. So each time we're able to go back with good news. So, so they have been very, very supportive and, and positive throughout to the point that they're, they're becoming many advocates themselves. I mean, yeah, I was going to say, I bet. My daughter often goes with my wife to a local hospital and gives, gives out thick kits and things and you know, encourages people to get screened. Both kids are coming on a, a fundraising climb, uh, climb for a cure. 
this weekend. And th there's no debate. You know, they want to do it. My son has said, I want to do more uh, on the advocacy front. They're very, very aware that they are high risk. But alongside that, that colorectal cancer is a highly preventable disease. And that if they were polyps were to be found, their removal is their safety. And so they know that treating it in advance sensibly means they shouldn't ever experience what I've gone through. And that's certainly how we're treating it now. I'm leading Kellen into this one because she's like the kid whisperer. But that the thing that you said that I want to lead her into is, is about kids having so much more knowledge. When we as adults try to protect them from things, you know, we're not giving them nearly enough credit, right, Kelly? Yeah, no, I mean, I have young kids still. I have a six-year-old and a 12-year-old. And um, my husband has health issues. And I remember my daughter when he was having, he's actually had a resection as well. But I remember the conversations we were having, I was feeling like, okay, she's understanding it. She's going through it. And then we would hit these waves and I'm wondering if you hit these as well. And then I looked into how kids deal with anxiety and depression and it's interesting and grief and that there's no linear fashion, which there isn't in adults either, but kids in particular are very nonlinear in how they deal and move through an issue. And with her, we were noticing that there was these periods where she seemed completely unfazed and then something would kind of break her in a way that you were like, oh, wow, that that's not that big of a deal. She really seems affected by X, Y, or Z. And then once we kind of realized what was actually happening, we kind of had conversations about it. And she's seen a counselor and things like that. But I was wondering if that is, is something that you guys noticed with your kids and things like that, because your kids were older and maybe had a little bit more awareness, but also still the same emotional taxing thing where they're seeing a parent in a vulnerable place. Yeah, I, I would subscribe to that. And, and um, th there may be underlying impacts that we have yet to see. I mean, I, I don't believe that I really was aware of my a, losing my brother, even though I'd never met him, that had an impact right. on my life and upbringing. And I kind of realized that in, in my 20s. And then my mother's death, which obviously had a massive shock factor, was incredibly distressing. It was quite a few years later before it really poured out of me. Right. You know, so, so there there may be a, a delay factor in the kids, and certainly I have noticed that. I would say my kids were largely unaffected, but now they're what you might call positively affected. Right. So, so for the first three years, it was almost like as as long as this disease isn't killing dad today, I don't need to know any more, and I'll get on with my life. And now they're much more embracing it and asking questions and what mm. can I do? So, so that's definitely been a little bit of a, a transition yeah. uh, uh, from them. So maybe that it's allowed to, it has been allowed to surface in their minds as, okay, I can have a conversation about this. I don't need to suppress it anymore. Uh, and we've never tried to push that either way. I, I don't want to force distress on them by any means. Yeah, That resonates with me. It's been two and a half years for me. And I'd say, you know, my first six months to 10 months was much more of a shock period and went through much more of a mental health crisis. Um, you know, whatever Xanaxes you didn't take, I think I took three of them. Unfortunately, like that was, a, a you know, so for my kids, they, they watched me go through a real mental health crisis. And I think that was, you know, I think we're still sorting that out today. But then they saw, even though I'm still actively in treatment, you know, now that I've regained my mental health for them to see that and to see me, 
you know, get back into really enjoying my life and doing work that matters has been, I've seen them be really lifted up by that. So, so yeah, in terms of the long term, I think we're, we're still going to be digging into that for quite a while. But I think one of the things that is probably something that you guys deal with as fathers is that you have this place in your kid's life that is your, how you see yourself as a dad. And then that shifts and it shifts so abruptly that you're parenting from a totally different lens. And then at times you actually feel like you aren't parenting at all because you have no energy for that part of your life if you're in treatment and things like that or going through the mental health issues. Yeah. We, we did make a determination though that as far as I was physically capable and mentally capable, we would lead as normal a parental life as possible. So for us, normal was our kids that do a lot of track and sports and that kind of thing. So for if I had suddenly stopped showing up at the weekend and photographing my kids doing sports, that would have signaled, mm. okay, there's something wrong with dad. So I would basically just cake my face in factor 70 and wear a mask <laughs> and wear a hat and wear a long sleeve. And I would sit and look like a weirdo on the track line because I would just... Right. <laughs> just <laughs> just c completely covered, but yeah. I had to show them uh, normal. And th th that was a driver for me. And of course, if I had not been well enough to do that, I wouldn't have. But but to be able to show them normal as, as much as possible, I, I went to work. You know, I, everything was, was on the surface normal, but I had treatment now and again. And just trying to treat treatment as routine as well was part of that package for them. So it wasn't this, dad's got chemo today panic stations it's just like dad's got chemo today he's got work tomorrow and he's doing photography the next day keep that structure that parental structure of like what they expect mm -hmm. especially you know if you even are able to create the structure of like the boundaries still and things like that and play a role in that i mean that's really i think a huge part yeah. for kids because once that goes and they don't have the structure they're just little kites in the wind and they <laughs> don't quite know what to yeah. look for you do raise a very good point there, actually. So when we moved, and, and you brought it up, Trevor, that I was diagnosed not long after moving. So my wife gave up a career to move to the US uh, as a family. And then we decided that for as long as it would take, she would not work in order to settle the kids. So by the time the kids were settled, I was diagnosed. So she continued not to work. I think that created the foundation that you're describing, where mm. she was basically catching every ball that would, would drop beca right. because she was able to. She had the time to and, and the inclination, obviously. So, Scott, now for something completely different. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to switch to some light content now. Now, Kellen and I, we used to call this the man up to cancer hot seat. Kellen has pointed okay. out quite rightly that maybe hot seat isn't the best term for us colorectal cancer folks but we haven't renamed it yet so he can't he, yeah he can't get it out of his head if you have suggestions though oh, he's right. open so, yeah if you definitely if you have suggestions open tonight i was going to call it the man up to cancer gauntlet of randomness okay that's good okay. yeah that works it's <laughs> long but it works it's gonna need some work i I accept your gauntlet. Okay. <laughs> We're going to start out with my classic one. And this is like the, my litmus test. So I may just have to buzzer you after this and boot you off the show. Pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Weirdly, yes. Aha, but, see, he's with me. He's with me. He's with me. But see, you're still young, Trevor. This is something I've grown into. Oh, yeah. If you asked young. me in my 30s, I would have said no. So so uh, it's an acquired taste. There's no partial credit. You're buzzed and you're now booted. Do you know, he keeps trying to find his kindred spirit in this and everybody has said yes to the pineapple. <laughs> All right. I'm going to accept your answer. 
I'm not happy about it. (laughs) If you were footwear, what kind of shoes would you be? Sandals, Chuck Taylors, steel-toed boots, other? Outdoor trainers. Outdoor trainers. So Scottish thing trainers. (laughs) I know there's no such thing as indoor trainers, but I mean like hiking trainers. Got it. Oh, no. That makes uh, sense. Um, If animals could talk, which would be the rudest? Oh. Oh, you don't have a multiple uh, choice on that one. You're just going to throw no, any animal. Throw, yeah. <laughs> Humans have probably already captured that. But I have a feeling a porcupine would have a, a choice word now and again. You're correct. And the other acceptable answer is Kellen's cat. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Talking nasty animals. I I didn't run over. My, my car straddled a skunk uh, oh. four weeks ago. I was coming back from photographing wild mustangs. And uh, I parked up to film. I do that fuel. all the time, by the way. Yeah. Just when I'm, when so, I'm, after just I photograph a wild mustangs. <laughs> just a little segue. Anyways, go ahead. to your straddling. Uh, but I was the filling up with fuel and I thought, is someone burning rubber in this town? And then I realized it was my car. Absolutely stank. And the, the skunk, even though I hadn't killed it, and, and uh, the, the car went over it and it went under the car. It had sprayed the car. <laughs> oh, oh, man. <laughs> How long did it take? Does your car still stink? Oh. No, it was about... Two weeks before it completely dissipated. What actor would play you in a movie about your life? There's one super obvious answer, but I'm going to see if you have someone who would play you in your movie. Well, be- being Scottish, I'm going to have to say Ewan McGregor. So. Oh, man. Oh, no, that you seemed disappointed with that. Who are you going to No, go I mean, with? Ewan McGregor is a great choice for yeah. you. It's one of two. It's either Ewan McGregor or Gerard Butler. I mean, <laughs> I, do, Gerard, I do get that name again. Yeah, see, he he obviously gets the Gerard Butler, like classic. No, I know you're just Scotsman you're so with, in the love with the beard. Yeah, you're uh, just. Okay, I, I feel like if you could just hang out with him in person and just know. you know talk about Scotland for you know. We're going to. I definitely am going to make that happen. I'm going to go to Denver, or Scott's going to come to New England to you know photograph something. All right, last one, and this is my classic. Everyone has to answer this. If you could only choose one weapon to use during the zombie apocalypse, what would it be? Uh, based on our prior conversation, it has to be a claymore and just stab the <laughs> shit out of little bastards. Oh, claymore, <laughs> yes! <laughs> Game over. You have redeemed yourself from your pineapple fail. Oh, man. Oh, well done, Scott. Like, next time I come, I'm literally just going to bring pizza with pineapple Stop. and eat it while we do the podcast. <laughs> Scott, you have aced the Man Up to Cancer gauntlet of randomness. And thank you so much for sharing, uh, you know, all of this today with us on the podcast. Well done, sir. Strangely, sitting talking to you about cancer for an hour has been an absolute pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we're going for. Score. (laughs) All right. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you for coming. No worries at all. Thanks for listening to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. If you want to get behind our mission, you can connect with us, subscribe to our email list, and check out our other content at manuptocancer.com. And if you know a man struggling with the isolation that cancer can bring, let him know about us. The Wolfpack doors are always open.